Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. To modern students of the Bible, it seems unfair that the least capable servant to whom the least was given was treated the most harshly by the Lord. Fortunately for those in need, the Lord's mercy is not our mercy. Truly, from the twisted perspective of our backward understanding of mercy and justice, the Lord is definitely unfair. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 24 to 27. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 387 of the Bible as Literature podcast. God in Scripture is a master with unrealistic expectations for his slaves. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount that he expects us to be perfect as he is perfect. That is the teaching of Jesus Christ. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why? Well, come on. Go back and read the letters of Paul. God gave you the Torah to explain to you that his expectation is perfection and to show you that you can't attain perfection so that you would realize you were no better than anyone else but he will still demand perfection of you. And that is why you can't accept the gospel, because every single American television show is someone talking to their therapist about how they couldn't live up to their dad's expectations. Of course you can't. I hope not. If you can live up to your dad's expectations, he wasn't your dad. He was your buddy. And your buddy can't teach you. Your buddy can't help you grow. Your buddy is useless. He's fine if you want to go to the movies or hang out at the basketball court, but he's useless if you want to grow and be challenged and develop as a person and become useful. I love that word useful. All of you want to be successful. Success is irrelevant because everybody dies. Usefulness is important. Remember the beautiful name from the New Testament, Onesimus. Paul found the slave of Philemon to be useful. Useful for the cause of the gospel, which pertains to the living God who does not die. It's about getting our priorities straight. We must be perfect as our Father in heaven, who is perfect, and we can't be perfect 
And we should not lose time complaining that his expectations were so high and now we're insecure and confused about our life. No. We should work hard out of gratitude for the fact that he saw us in the marketplace when we were just nameless Gentiles. He saw us when we were in bondage in Egypt. And he offered us the opportunity to become slaves in his Roman household. That's the choice he offered. You can stay a slave where you are, or you can be my slave. But as his slaves, we have no choice except to do the work he assigns. That's it. But you can't complain when he gives you work. And you cannot renege on the work assigned. When I was in high school, I was always someone who did well in school, who did well on tests. I knew how to take tests. I knew how to study. I did a great job. And then when I came up to the SAT, I freaked out because if you give the wrong answer, it's worse than if you give no answer. You lose points for a wrong answer, whereas for an empty answer, you get zero points. It was riskier to give a wrong answer than to give no answer. And I'd always thought that they were the same. The point of that system is so you can't guess. But if you can narrow it down, the odds are in your favor. It didn't speak to me because I didn't care about the odds. I wanted a sure thing. I wanted to be able to deal with my fear of losing points by being wrong. That freaked me out. I didn't want to be wrong. The fear of doing something wrong is something that I know very clearly. I mean, that's one thing that propels you through grad school is the fear of getting something wrong. It helps you get stuff done, but it eats you up inside because you can't handle the pressure eventually. Accepting the fact that you can't do it perfectly right can be liberating. In evaluating people, you have to make a test that nobody can get right if you're going to actually evaluate someone's level. Because if the test is easy, half the class gets an A, who's smarter among that 50%? You don't know. Who knows the material better than that 50%? You don't know. But if you make it so hard that no one can get 100%, then you actually find out who's at what level. But the only way is to set the bar above the smartest person in the class. I mean, that's just a way of evaluating human skills. That's normal. But the fear of taking on one's duty because one might not do a good enough job is not good enough. You have to take on the duty that's yours. You have to set out today to memorize all of Scripture. Are you going to do it? No. But if you don't try, it's even worse for you. You know, there's actually a Buddhist idea that as soon as you feel settled, it's an illusion. There is no being settled because, as you said, Father, none of us are holy. None of us are going to become holy. But we live in the paradox that even though we know we won't become holy, we have to strive to become holy. That's just how the Sermon on the Mount functions. Accepting the fact that there's no way that we can be holy actually frees us to pursue this path that the Lord puts us on and tells us to walk on. It's not as in Buddhism where we have a choice whether we want to walk on this or not. We take on a yoke in Christianity. Once you take on a yoke... 
You are a slave, and you walk forward. You are a soldier, and God is the general, and you are not allowed to take a step to the left or to the right. You stay on the path, knowing that you're going to go off the path, but knowing that you have to get right back on the path. You don't have a choice once you accept this yoke. This whole business about doing it to become holy is already going against Paul's teaching, becoming holy. If you accept the framework of the Word of God, remember you were a slave in Egypt, or as a Gentile, you were a slave in the Roman marketplace, and you were given the option to become a slave in someone else's household, in someone else's tribe. Once you accepted that free gift of slavery in a new household, you accepted the footing of gratitude. That's it. I had a bad deal, and now in principle I have a good deal because I have a new master who's merciful and kind and slow to anger. In this new household, I'm going to do what I'm asked because it's my duty, and I do it out of gratitude. That's what the Eucharist is. It's gratitude. You don't do it to get something or to earn something. You don't do it to become something. You do it because it's decent and correct. It's your duty. And you're thankful because just last week you were homeless. But that's not how we think. We don't as we are commanded in the Torah. Remember that we were once in bondage in Egypt, that we were once strangers in Egypt. We don't think this way. And then when God demands of us that we do something with that which was entrusted to us for the sake of those who are still in bondage, we get squeamish and we start complaining about what a hard man he is and how tough it is and I just want Jesus to be my friend. Well, that's not what I see written here. Just go back and read Psalm 2 a thousand times, please. Just go back and read Psalm 2 over and over again until it burns a hole in your forehead. And then try to listen to people talk about contemporary Christian piety. And you'll realize that everyone today is a worshiper of Baal. Everybody has made up a new paganism. It's a big joke. You better believe that the master of God's Roman household, who took the place of Caesar in the Roman Empire, you better believe he's a hard man. Don't think that because God, the Father of Jesus Christ, the Father of all fathers, humbled his son in order to teach Israel once and for all the lesson of humility that they would not accept through his law. Do not think that because Jesus was humbled on the cross that he's humble. Don't be fooled. Go back and reread 1 Corinthians to the end of chapter 16, please. And then come back here and read Matthew 24 and 25 and shake in your boots. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. What does that mean? It means that he expects other people to work for him and produce. Jesus does not lead by example. I can't stand this expression. It's so self-righteous. And it's insidious in its self-righteousness because people really believe that they're humble when they talk about leading by example. Are you kidding me? If you lead by example, you are saying that you are God and everybody should be like you. We shouldn't imitate you. We should imitate the teaching of Jesus Christ. We should not imitate you. We should be imitators of Christ, which is the teaching. You imitate the law. You meditate on the law, on the words of God's instruction. This means that God gave a command. In the context of this parable, he gave a paradosis, an ordinance, a deposit. Okay, he gave the talents over. And he expected you to do something. He himself was not going to do the work for you. But he gets all the credit. God, in the parable of the talents, is like an executive who assigns all the work out and then puts his name on it and presents it as his own. And you are happy and overjoyed and you are not entitled or arrogant or huffy about it because you're just happy to have a job. You don't mind him getting all the credit for all the work that was done. And he expects you to work really hard. And he does not plan to do the work for you. He's been doing the work for Israel since the beginning of Genesis. Enough is enough. There's only one victim in Scripture. It is God. And people who have raised children know that it is the parents who are the victim. Because they have to slave to take care of their kids. Come on. And don't start doing what people always do in giving me the example of all the kids who have been victimized. I know kids are mistreated. I'm not speaking to the exception. You always bring up the exception to derail the conversation. In a normal family, and contrary to contemporary American insanity, there is such a thing as normal. In a normal family, it is the parents who slave for the children. Give me a break. In Scripture, it is God who is the only victim. This is fulfilled in the crucifixion. And that is why here God is not going to do the work for anybody. We have to do the work. It's like what you were saying before, Richard, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and prepare them for the time he would be gone, when they have to do the work. He expects to reap where he did not sow. This is the one servant of whom the least was expected. So one could say, well, you know, obviously the Lord, the Kyrios, did not trust this servant all that much. He didn't think that much could be made of this slave. And sure enough, we see that the Kyrios was right not to trust very much in him. The reason is actually revealed by the slave himself. Because the first thing he does is he comes up with 
excuses, but not even about his own behavior. He starts telling the Kyrios who the Kyrios is. This is how he's going to begin the conversation. Well, Lord, let me tell you about you. You're kind of rough. You kind of expect a lot out of people. You aren't very forgiving. And sometimes you don't give everybody the credit. It's a weird way of laying the foundation of his own excuses. This parable comes in a long series of parables about preparing for that day when every stone in Jerusalem is going to be on the ground and no stone will be on another. There is a time coming when everything around us is going to be destroyed. And like we said last week, it's very strange to think of this parable, which is talking precisely about the time when all structures are going to be leveled and then use this parable to talk about a building program and and investing money into buildings. It's a strange irony, but that's exactly how it gets used because it gets separated from its context of Matthew 24 and 25. So this slave could not be counted on. And the slave builds a case against himself by first telling the Lord who he is. And as you said, Father, this Lord expects something out of his slave. He didn't buy slaves for no reason. He bought slaves so that a job could be done. And this job entrusted them with all of his costly worldly goods for them to go and make more. Not just for his own sake, obviously, for the sake of the entire household. But this slave could not be counted on, and we're going to hear more about his excuses momentarily. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. It's the fear that is the problem. It's the fear of failure. The fear of not living up to your expectations of yourself. You still think that you're your own judge. You need to throw away your own measuring stick. It's not about what you decide to become or want to become. It's what the master wants. The master sets the bar, the master assigns the work, and the master judges you. And you just accept it. This guy does not want to accept the master's judgment. He has already decided that he is not good enough. He has already condemned himself. He's not even giving the master the chance to show him mercy. He is more arrogant and more kingly than the king of kings and the lord of lords. Just to show you how backwards American psychology is, everybody would look at this guy and feel sorry for him. Oh, he was afraid because the master was such a hard man. The master should have had an open door policy and he should have talked to him and related to him more. He should have been more understanding. No. This guy was arrogant and self-righteous. He should have accepted and trusted. That's the system. And in the Roman Empire, it would have been clear. You have to deconstruct our own historical context for people to understand 
how messed up and how backwards this slave is because today everybody's going to defend this slave as being the victim. But a Roman slave would have been like, what's this guy's problem? Didn't hear what the master said? Today you go to HR and, you know, you complain. And <laughs> By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not comparing which culture is better. I'm explaining the difference so you understand what Scripture is trying to say. I like that it's not written for an American context because I think it is very important for an American to bend and twist their mind to think about another situation that they might not find themselves in. And Scripture forces us to do that. Scripture, if it's not bending and twisting your mind, you're not listening, because that's what its job is. This slave was afraid and didn't do the job. Just like when I took the SAT, I was afraid to put an answer because I'd lose points if I was wrong, better to put no answer at all, because then at least I just get a zero. But guess what? If you just don't answer any of the questions on the SAT, you get a zero. <laughs> and then I could say, well, but I knew that if I guessed, I would lose points. If I was wrong, I would lose points. I don't want a negative score. And he's like, but you got a zero. <laughs> How is getting a zero better than losing points? It's ridiculous. The fear puts us in this situation. Better to say, you know what, I'm not going to do the most stupid thing. And all of a sudden, your odds go up for doing the right thing. And this servant, this slave, was so petrified that he didn't do anything. He sat on it. He did nothing. And I'm thinking if I were the curious, I'd be like, I could have sat on my own talent. Like, why do I have you at all? That's a good question, and one that is difficult for this slave. So now the slave says, you have what's yours, and this is supposed to be the answer? When the other slaves invested and gave a return, all of that was his. So this slave not only gives back the talent that was the Lord's anyway, he neglects to give back what is also the Lord's, which is what would have come from reaping the rewards of investing this talent. He withholds everything that should have belonged to the Kyrios. The slave did not do his job. The slave did not do his duty by investing and giving the gains back to the Kyrios. He furthermore blames the Kyrios for being too mean and being too hard, skleros, and this is ultimately where the self-righteousness comes. Anyone who says, well, I would be rich and famous if it only weren't for so-and-so, or if only I hadn't gotten this bad break, then I would have everything I ever wanted. Everything would be good in my life, except circumstances aren't what they are for that other person. I mean, this is what Job complains about, that like, how come I got the short end of the stick here? And the Lord has to come at the end of the story and say, you don't even know what stick you're talking about. You don't even know how many sticks there are out there. You don't know what end of the stick you got. You don't even understand sticks. This is how the Kyrios has to speak. Because otherwise, human beings like us will give these stupid excuses 
and saying, you were too mean, so I decided to do nothing, and I hope you're happy. Here's what you gave me. (laughs) Even in an American society, I don't know how many bosses are going to keep around that worker. The field, the bank, the money, the money that could be made, and the slave all belong to the master. So the very notion that the slave can give something to the master and identify it as belonging to the master separate from anything else within the domain of the slave, including the slave himself, exposes a false premise. That's the arrogance of the statement. Here's what's yours. And that is, I believe, impossible for we Americans to understand because we really believe Thomas Jefferson that we can own property. And then we believe that he meant happiness when he put lipstick over the word property. We really do. And then we're confused why everybody's depressed. We really believe we own stuff. It's amazing to me. How can somebody who's passing away own something? How can you possess something? But there it is. That's the genius of the New Testament. Because only God the Father, who does not die, can truly be a father. And the father of fathers, not this imposter, the emperor, Caesar. Come on, he's a fake, he's a fraud. He's the Antichrist. That's the point. Once you understand this, then the book of Revelation is much more exciting than the Avengers. Believe me. Then you look at what happened in late antiquity, and it's impressive. Then you understand why the pen is mightier than the sword. Come on. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. This is a frustrated teacher. The only thing worse than someone who does the wrong thing is someone who can parrot your teaching back to you and still does the wrong thing. When someone does the wrong thing, like a student or an employee or one of your children, and you go in to deal with the situation, the best possibility is that an innocent mistake was made or there was a misunderstanding, or they truly didn't get it. That's the best possibility. So that you can correct a misunderstanding and set the situation back on the right path. The worst possible outcome for a teacher or a manager is when you walk into a situation and the person knows exactly what was supposed to happen and they still did the wrong thing. How can there be any hope for this guy? How can there be any other outcome except weeping and gnashing of teeth 
when you can literally parrot my teaching back to me and you still buried the gospel in the mud? Are you kidding me? One sin that's not stated about this slave is that he talks too much. <laughs> well, the other two, the other two slaves. I mean, in this regard, we can't be too hard on him. <laughs> I, the gospel hard on all of us, Father. What can I say? The other two slaves. They said, "You gave me this. Here's your total." And he said, "Awesome." That was it. That was the whole conversation. This guy had to go on for two verses about why he didn't do anything. If he had just said, you gave me a talent, sorry, I only have a talent to give back to you. He might be like, yeah, I knew you were a lousy slave. Come on, buddy. I mean, that could have been it. But instead, he had to go and self-righteously proclaim his sloth and his fear. So maybe there's something going on there as well. Here, his fear is not even mentioned in the accusation. The accusation is that he is poniros. He is evil. He is wicked. He did not follow the teaching of the Kyrios. He did not do the duty the Kyrios gave him, and he admitted it. This is the wickedness, and that comes before the sloth. Did the other servants not know that this was a hard master? I'm sure they did. That's why they hopped to it and did their duty. But the difference between the good slave and the bad slave is the good slave says, you're tough. I'm going to go do a good job as best I can, at least. And the wicked servant was lazy and said, I knew I couldn't do well enough for you. And then he just didn't do anything. The wickedness and the sloth are tied together because the sloth is not, he likes sitting on the couch too much. The other slaves like sitting on the couch too. So they might have said, you know what? If I can make as much money back by the end of the day, then I can sit on my couch again. Some of us can be motivated by sloth. I want to work as hard as I can today so I can go sit on the couch this evening so I have enough money to pay for Netflix. But at least you're working for it. This guy didn't do anything. That's what makes him slothful is that he didn't do anything. If he had invested the talent and lost it, I don't know what would have happened, but it seems like it wouldn't have been as bad because at least he couldn't have called him slothful. At least he couldn't have called him wicked because he did what he was told. He was just bad at it. But to be bad at something or to not even try, I think that being bad is probably better off. I mean, if you look at Paul, at least he had a turnaround story once he did what he was supposed to do, even though he was clearly wicked before. But he did his duty. This slave is told... I don't like the translation that you read, Father, because it says you should have taken it to the bank, which doesn't make sense. It's you should have given it to what is often translated in King James as exchangers, but it's trapezites. It's those who are engaged in the table, which, of course, Father Paul links very closely with the table fellowship that Paul makes a huge deal about and that Peter makes a huge deal about and that they come to loggerheads about. You should have invested in the table. You should have given it to the table people. And this is where we see the kind of break in the metaphor where we come through. This is not just about talents. This is not just about money. But this is about investing the teaching with those 
who are at the table. I think the criticality of the term trapezites relates very much to the criticality, the technical criticality of paradosis, or talent, which implies weight, responsibility, burden. Because the weight of the gospel, the burden of the gospel teaching, and this tension between Peter and Paul, between Paul and the pillars, you know, especially James, but Peter being the real nemesis of Paul in the New Testament story arc, is table fellowship with the nations, as you said. That is what is being preached. Remember that the Torah was given to humble Israel before the nations so that there could be table fellowship. So this word that is cheaply translated as bank, because it's referring to a table where money is changed. That's the thing. It's like when fundamentalists see the militaristic imagery in the prophets and then build an army and raise a flag and make war. The manifest destiny crowd, whether you're rounding up Native Americans or rounding up Palestinians or rounding up Jews in Europe in World War II, it doesn't matter which side you're on. It's the same game. You see that there are chariots and war horses in the Bible, and then that's all you see because all that is inside of you, the darkness in the lamp of your eye, is chariots and war horses. So that's what you get from the Bible, and that's what you build, and that's what you do. So if you come to the Bible and all that's in you is the darkness of money changing and banks— that's all you're going to get from this parable. And so you're just going to translate this. Oh, he must just be talking about a bank because he's talking about money. And these are people that are supposedly scholars that are translating this text. And they don't get it. They fall in the trap. It's a kind of fundamentalism. Because they're just imposing the darkness inside of them that just sees this as a table at a bank. When in fact... We're talking about the table of fellowship. The marketplace is not the place where you go to buy chicken. The marketplace in the New Testament is the place where God bought you in Galatians. The marketplace is also the place where there's an exchange between people from different nations. The marketplace is a place of the variety of peoples which is a very important issue in the Bible. So this table is a place of fellowship. These are technical terms. These are important concepts in Scripture. So yeah, the deposit could just be some money I gave you, but it's not when you're looking at the context. It's not. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.